So, so let's just get to it. So Alpha and Omega, we're in that series. We've been talking about it. We, we got a glimpse of God at the end, and now we, we, we've spent several weeks looking at the beginning. So we've seen him as the Omega, just a glimpse. We're, we're building back. We're going to be ending up in Revelation when this is all said and done. But we've really been paying attention to him as the Alpha, the beginning, the source, the, where, where it all started. And we've seen him as God in that time. He's always been God, always will be God, and he is God right now. That's the whole purpose for this sermon series. So, so we've seen his greatness. We've seen that his power, his sovereignty, his, his eternal attributes, that he's everywhere at all times. He's the source of all things. We've seen his glory, that he is worthy of worship, that he is above all worthy of our adoration, our devotion, our setting aside of everything else. There's nothing worth having more than having him. He is the greatest treasure. Gaining God, gaining him is the greatest treasure in all the, all, all the universe. So, and then we saw last week, we, we turned and we began to see that not only is he great, not only is he glorious, he's also good. He is a good God. In this fallen world, we're all struck and we're all, the, the common lot of humanity in this fallen world is that every one of us deal with hardship. We deal with suffering. But there's another common lot that we don't often think about and don't often identify in. We are all creatures of a good God. There's no place else to look. If you want the good life, you want the life with him because he is the very standard of good. He is the source of good. He has always been good, always will be good, and, will, and he is good right now. So that's, that's really been our focus. Now, over the next two weeks, alongside his greatness, he's going to continue to be great. Alongside his glory, he's still glorious. And alongside his goodness, we are really going to get to see his grace. Now, let me just say something about this just real quickly, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. God doesn't have to be gracious to also be great and glorious and good. Think about this. He could be powerful and not gracious. He could be sovereign and authority over everything and, and everything answers to him and he not be gracious. He could be glorious, worthy of worship in every way and not be gracious. He could be good, the standard of good. Good in everything he does. And we never be benefited by that goodness because we are not. But it's his grace that allows us to be, again, a people of blessing, not a people under wrath. So we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. We're going we're to see his grace just demonstrated even as we study the fall of mankind. It, is, it becomes um, so evident. So it's undeniable. It's just clear in this chapter that it's by his grace that we can know his greatness, his glory, and his goodness. And not be crushed by it or condemned in it, uh, but be blessed. And so, so, so we're going to see that. So we're going to start today. We're actually going to work through the whole chapter of Genesis 3. Um, we're not going to do it, and I'm not going to read in all one segment. What I'm going to do is read chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We'll talk through it a little bit. I'll pray. We'll talk through it a little bit. Uh, and then we'll move on through the rest of the chapter. We're actually going to get through all 24 verses. I know you're thinking, oh, man, there's a lot there. There is. We're not going to deal with it in as much detail as we could. And if I were looking to preach through Genesis, I might take this in chunks if, if this was a series through the book of Genesis. But it's not. It's a series through the, the Bible. And so we're, we're taking this in a big chunk. And we're going to hit that big ideas and see them expressed in Scripture. So let's, let's jump in. Let's get started without further ado. Let's read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent, <clears throat> excuse me, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really, or did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You, you will not surely die. For, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. and They saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking into the garden, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, <clears throat> from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to sit today and think, well, why would they do something like that? I can only imagine that if I were in that space and in that time and faced with that same choice, I would do it to you. Help us, Father. Help us just hear today. Really, what is the source of all the struggle, all the pain, all the heartache, all the hurt? But more than that, help us to hear the solution. Help us to hear, even in introduction, just the, the plan you have, the grace you've established, and the grace you've bestowed. I pray today, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think about where we're at as we read those verses. God has pronounced everything very good, right? So at the end of chapter 1, and so chapter 1, the, the last few verses, they kind of serve as, they really are the end of the creation story, even though they fall between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 2 zooms in on the creation story and shows us in specific day 6 and shows us creation from the man's perspective or really with him at the center of creation Chapter 1 shows us the chronology, the flow of time, the, the, the days of creation, and shows us the order in which God created forming and then filling everything. And chapter 1, verses, uh, right around verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, really could fall at the end of chapter 2, and it wouldn't really change the flow of the story or the flow of the historical account in any way. God finishes his work. He completes everything. Day 6, he looks at it all in verse Chapter 1, verse 31, he looks at it all and he sees that it is very good. Everything that he's created, not some of it, not, not, not parts of it, not everything is good except for this one thing. It is very good. It's exactly as he intended it to be. Everything is functioning the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's marked with harmony. Everything's working together. Intimacy, mankind knows and is known by God and each other. At the, at the end of chapter 2, we're told that that the man and woman, like God presents the woman to the man, and he's like, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And God says that as a result of, of what's happening here, his intention is that a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, and two will become one flesh. That becomes the foundation of marriage, the foundation, in fact, that's talked about all the way through the New Testament. It refers us back to uh, uh, that, that passage where God says these things about the man and the woman in marriage. Everything is great. It's so good. It's exactly as God intends it. Intimacy. Abundance. And, and all of these trees, everything in the garden is, is yours. You can eat of it. You can enjoy it. 
except for one. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that you can't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here, here's the thing. I often draw from this in, in marriage ceremonies. There's, there's a way in which we, we stand in front of, of, of this group of witnesses, and, and any time I officiate a wedding, I've, I've walked with the, the, the couple through what marriage is and the biblical view of marriage and the intention for marriage, and, and, I, and I end up in this passage where we're in Genesis, and I often refer to this in the middle of the ceremony. Here we're about to celebrate the, the two becoming one, the, the oneness uh, of the union between a man and a woman in the midst of marriage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with that. I'm going to say it, and, and then I call out this distinction. Except that we're no longer in a garden paradise. And the one officiating your wedding isn't God, but yours truly. But that has continued. That, that continues to be the same. Well, what makes this so different? What, why then is marriage so different? Why is this so difficult? Why is it so hard to live together as one flesh? Why is it so such a struggle. The question really becomes, what, what went wrong? What has gone wrong? And simply put, from this passage, we did. More precisely, Adam and Eve did. But mankind sinned. And as a result of their sin, they introduced uh, corruption into what was very good. They introduced chaos back into the cosmos. And then God comes and brings a curse. And that's really the main point. The whole point we're going to work through as we work through this is that the cosmos God created is corrupted and cursed because of mankind's sin. Only God can now, oh, only God can deliver us from the chaos. The cosmos God created is corrupted and cursed beyond uh, because of mankind's sin. Only God can now, uh, can deliver us from the chaos. The, the, the question inevitably comes, right? Like, why is evil so rampant? Why is, why is suffering so big? Why is it so, so prominent in the world? And at the heart of the question is this answer. Mankind is the source of that evil. Man, mankind is the one, the, re, the reason for it. We're the thing that happened to the creation that brought the corruption. It would be easy to blame the serpent, right? The serpent came, tempted Eve. That's, that's how it reads, right? The serpent, some, somehow the serpent fell. Tempted Eve, and, and so really it's the serpent's fault. We're going to see that that's not exactly how God sees it in the verses to come. See, the reality is Adam and Eve could have been tempted, and the earth, the cosmos, never been, never been subject to this corruption because it wasn't on the serpent. The responsibility didn't fall to the serpent. It fell to the man and the woman. It's their lives, their sin. It's their, their the reason. The cosmos, this, this is the first section, the first piece of this point. The cosmos is corrupted by mankind's sin. Not the temptation that the serpent brought. Not the, not the potential of sin. Their actual sin. The cosmos is corrupted by mankind's sin. That's exactly what we see happening in these first verses. Now let's talk about the serpent. Not a mythological creature. A lot of people, because the serpent talks, they want to make this into a, a mythology. They want to make it into a story that was told that's not really historically accurate. It's just a bunch of symbolism. <laughs> oh, man, I, wanted, I, I would just say very carefully, that's possible. But there's nowhere else in the Bible that treats any of this as if it's a mythology. The whole Bible treats this as, as, as if it's history. So this isn't some mythological creature that didn't really exist. This is a real serpent God made it. In fact, it says that in verse 1. The, the, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. God made this serpent. 
this particular serpent happens to be being used of Satan. So, so what I would suggest, and I think this is the, the, the most uh, healthier or most well-rounded, most biblical, if you will, interpretation of this, is that the serpent's a real serpent, a real, real snake that's been embodied or possessed by Satan. It's not the first time that, and it's not the only time in the scripture that it was the first time, but it's not the only time in the scripture that Satan, demons, possessed animals. You know that happened, right? When Jesus comes up to a demon-possessed man, he says, uh, the, the demons speak to Jesus. Jesus says, who are you? And he says, we are legion. There's thousands of us. And Jesus is about to cast them out. And they say, hey, will you send us into the pigs or let us go into the pigs? He lets them go into the pigs. What do the pigs do? They, they run off. And they jump off a cliff. And everybody around realizes, oh, man, this, these demons, they just possess these pigs. And they got mad at Jesus over it. But the reality is what's happening here is, is, I think, is that we have the physical specimen of a serpent possessed by Satan, the, the, the chief demon, who Jesus says in Revelation 12, 9, he makes a reference to it in 12, 9, and in Revelation 22. In both cases, he calls Satan the ancient serpent. And speaking of this in Genesis, so I think that's what we see happening here is so, some people would suggest, well, man, it's crazy that she'd even talk. Like, why isn't she asking the question? Why, how can you talk? I don't know. I don't know what it was like before mankind fell. I don't know what, what it was like before the earth was cursed. Everything's new. Maybe she's thinking she's experiencing some new thing in God's creation, right? Like, I don't know. But she enters into conversation that the Bible doesn't even explicitly tell us how Satan come to fall and embody this serpent. It just says it. Here's, here's what's interesting about this. So, so Genesis 1 chapter 1, Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning, God. Doesn't tell us about his origin. That, I mean, other than he has none. Doesn't tell us about um, what it was like before he created. Doesn't give us, just proclaims God. Just says, he exists. Before everything was, he was. Everything that now is that isn't God, he created. That's, what, that's essentially the, the message of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 starts, and again, we're not given a lot of detail. We're given very little detail. And here's, here, here's I, I said this in the first week. I think sometimes we will draw a bunch of conclusions and we will tie a bunch of ideas together that make us feel good because we know something. Because we now have knowledge of something. But if it's not stated plainly in the scripture, we've been wrestling with this, in fact, in the church history class that we've been working through in the equip hour. If, if it's not stated plainly in the scripture, and we've just begun to believe it because of conjecture or tradition, why is it so important to us that we hold to it? I, I think, I think at least in part, and I didn't, I, I, I just, this, this is, it's been something on my mind a lot. I didn't say this early in our class when we were talking about it. But I think our problem is when we look at the, like the beginning of the book of the Bible, or the beginning of the Bible, and we look at the end of the Bible, there's so much mystery. So much that's just stated, that's just said, that's not explained, that leaves us in a place of not knowing with certainty, but having to believe. I think we want to know because we'd rather believe in what we know than the one we know. I don't have to have the answer of where Satan's fall was, although there are some passages in Ezekiel and in Isaiah that could and maybe do speak to that. 
But those passages have been, their near fulfillment is the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. I'm not saying that they couldn't be referencing, that there couldn't be a far fulfillment in looking at Satan and his fall. I'm not saying that's not possible. I'm just saying, I, I think we need to be very careful as we look at this and say, well, hey, I need to know the beginning of the serpent. I need to know all the answers around the serpent. No, you don't. You know the God who does and the God who preserved it so that we could hear about it. Trust him. Now, that may not satisfy all of you, and I'm sorry for that, but I'm not here to satisfy you. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says. And it doesn't say specifically what I believe the best interpretation is. The serpent was there. God created it. We know that. We see it. In his curse, there's going to be both a physical and a spiritual curse. So, so we see the physical creature, and I think he's, in, he's indwelt or possessed by, the, by Satan. I think that's what Jesus refers to in Revelation. But again, a lot, of people, a lot of people would debate that. But he comes and he tempts the woman. He seeks to talk to her about this tree. Now let's talk about the tree. We're first in, introduced to it in Genesis chapter 2. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said to the man, before he created the woman, he said to the man, hey, you got all these trees, except for one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will die. Well, man's got no reason to question God. God said, let there be light, light shining. God said, let the earth be filled with plants. There's plants around. God said the, there's going to be animals, and oh, I just named a bunch of them. So, yeah, if I eat of that tree, I'm going to die. There's no reason to question that, right? So, so, so there's the law, there's the command, there's the expectation, but here comes this serpent. He's saying, hey, wait a minute. So, so what is this? What, what is this tree? Again, it's part of God's good creation. I think it would be wrong. I think there would be error if we said that there's some magical thing or some poison in the, in the fruit. Um, you know, there's the tradition that it's an apple. We've got no, no ability to say it's an apple, but we've just all grown up seeing an apple tree and the snake eating an apple, and then we all just think it's an apple. It never says. It never tells us. Just says this, this fruit with seeds in it. The only fruit that's referenced in chapter 3 is figs. And it's not even the figs that are mentioned. It's the leaves that they use to make clothes with. So here we've got this tree that's part of the creation that is part of God's very good creation. The problem with the tree is not the tree. The problem with the tree is the you can't, t- you can't eat from that tree. That's the, only, that's the only issue with the tree is God's command. It's the prohibition of that tree. So God holds that tree back, says you can't have it, and that should be good enough. Right? He's done everything. He, he put us all together and don't eat the tree. Okay, I won't eat the tree. But here comes this serpent who's speaking, who begins to, to ask questions and have this conversation in which we know Satan begins to use. He deceives in this moment. Satan deceives. So mankind's corruption or mankind's sin is what brings corruption, but it starts with deception. Satan deceives. And look at how he does it. Did God really say? Did he actually say? Is that it? Come on, let's, let's, parse through. let's parse the Greek. Let's really pick this apart. Did he actually say? It causes doubt in his word. Now, I know, I've already, I've, I've just said, hey, there's a lot of things we don't know. We have to trust the one who, who wrote them. I'm not trying to cause doubt. I'm trying to say, hey, trust the one. I'm trying to try, try, to, try to draw confidence in the one who wrote the word, who's the source of the word, not, not the things that we can conjecture about the word. I, I, I want us to be confident in what God has to say. But Satan comes along and says, did, did he really? Did, did, he, did he really say you can't eat it? Is, is that really a thing he would 
do. I mean, and what's he say next? When, when she answers, oh, yeah, he, he said, don't eat of the tree, don't even touch it. She extends it. She makes it more strict than it actually is. And there's some that would say that there's some misunderstanding or, or she's done something in error there. Uh, it's hard to know because God doesn't condemn her for it. When the curse is pronounced later, when he's walking through the list of issues, he doesn't say, Eve, you said it wrong. So, so we don't really know. She just says, we're not supposed to eat it. He said, we're not supposed to eat it. We're not supposed to touch it or we'll die. So what's he say back? You'll not die. So now, now, now he's not just causing doubt in the word of God. Did he really say? He's counting, causing doubt in the work of God his, or, or his character. I'm sorry. You're not going to die. He's a liar. You're not going to die. I don't know where he got that. You're, you're not going to die. In fact, you're going to live better. Right? Like he, he moves from this place where he causes doubt in what God has said to doubting in who God is, in his character, to doubting in what, what, what God can actually accomplish. You're, you're, you're going to live better. You're going to be like God. You're going to be more like God than God created you. You're going to know good and evil. What does that mean? Like what is knowing good and evil? Like what's that what's all about? Well, Adam and Eve, they already knew good. They, they were surrounded by good. Everything is very good. God had allowed them the knowledge of good. They had the experience. They had the, 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 the perspective. They had the understanding of what is good. But God had prohibited this tree so that they would never understand what evil was. The absence of good, the opposite of good, the thing that removes good. So I, the one commentator I was reading from this week can't remember who it was, but he talked about this, this idea that what, what's good and, and not good or what's, what's evil. And he talked about evil being the thing that removes good. So murder is evil because it removes life, which is good, right? So, so if you take away good, it's evil. So it becomes the absence of it, if you will. The contrasting light and dark and hot and cold and good and evil. Good is the thing that exists. God created it. This evil, this removal of his good is, that's evil. He says, you're going to be better. You're going to know. You're going to know what God's kept you from knowing. So we're doubting in his, his word, his character, his work. I appreciate Derek Kidner, uh, one of the, another commentator I, I read from. He, he demonstrates the power of this lie, the bigness of this lie. He says, the climax is a lie big enough to reinterpret life right? You're already created in his image, but you're going to be more like him. Your life is going to be better. The climax is a lie big enough to reinterpret life and a dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition to be as God and to achieve it by outwitting him is an intoxicating program. Yeah, he didn't want, you, he, he didn't want this for you, but I got something for you. He, he, he's trying to keep it from you, but I'm here to give it to you. God will henceforth be regarded, consciously or not, as rival and enemy. So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. Everything the serpent is saying is built on a lie. And because it is, it is a, uh, 
There's a lot of things I want to say about it, but I'll, I'll just say that because it is, it is not all he has dressed it up to be. God didn't really say that you can't eat the fruit. He wouldn't do that. God's, God's better than that. And, and in fact, you're not going to die. You're going to become like, you're going to become more than you are. You're going to live even better. You're going to live bigger. We still do this. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere we turn in our world today, we're, we're surrounded by this. A world that says, did God really say? That builds their assumptions, that builds their, their, their lifestyles, that builds their, their demands for how everybody else acts. Did God really say sex outside of marriage is bad? Hey, if it, it feels so good. It can't really be bad. God really say, I shouldn't be getting drunk. Helps me forget about my day. Did God really say, I can't, cut, I can't kill that person, just cut me off in traffic. Did God really say murder's that bad? I think I can justify that. My life would be better if I rid myself of the person that just cut me off in traffic. If I have that sexual escapade even though he says I shouldn't have it. My life will be better. I'll, I'll have a bigger life. I'll have a better life. I'll, I'll be as God, determining right and wrong for myself. We justify our actions by determining God wants us to be happy. Yeah, God wants you to be happy. But he wants you to be happy as a result of having made you whole. Think about this. God knows the only path to happiness is through your holiness. Everything else leads to death. We act as if, if God is keeping something from us. I remember when I was a high schooler, I'm not proud of this, don't, don't take this in any way as I'm proud of this, but as a high schooler acting as a fool and, and sneaking around and drinking and carousing and, and thinking I... I thought God was keeping me from the good life. He was keeping something from me. When in reality, the prohibition is given to protect me. To protect us. He gave the prohibition on the tree as, as a test, but the prohibition is as much to protect us from evil as to keep us from something good. He has created a very good creation. So Satan comes in and deceives. Eve observes and eats. She looks at this. She sees it. Oh, wow, that's good-looking fruit. Didn't smell like poison. I don't know if she smelled it. She looked at it. We know she looked at it. She sees it's a delight to the eyes, right? It's good for food. It's desired to make one wise. Uh, uh, again, one of the commentaries I was reading from this week, I never thought of it in these terms. <clears throat> and I'm not, I'm not anti-science, so don't hear this in saying this, but the guy says, the guy actually points out and draws out, she's the first person who's basing her opinions about how she should live in the world more on her empirical evidence than on the truth of God's word. Think about that. <laughs> her whole life, she's about to, she's about to, to trust the word of this serpent who's just cast doubt on everything about who God is, and now her own empirical observations. It's good food. It looks good. It'll make me wise. 
Who's she believing here? Who's she trusting? Herself, the serpent. Not the God who created her, the one that owes her everything, that's given her the whole world. And she eats. And it wasn't the touching, and it wasn't the looking, and it wasn't the wrestling that she was condemned for. It was the eating. Because in it, what she really believed was proven. She believed that Satan was telling the truth and that God had told a lie and that by this, she could have a better life. She observes and she eats. And then she gives that fruit to Adam. Adam listens to his wife. We know this. We're going to read this in just a second. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. God actually says, because you've listened to your wife. So, so Paul makes clear in the text later in the New Testament, Paul makes clear the man wasn't deceived by Satan. Eve was deceived by Satan. That Adam ate because he listened to his wife. So, so Eve comes and says, look, I ate the fruit. I didn't die. You're not going to believe what this, this serpent just told me. The one who should have spoken truth listened to a lie. He listened. And then he ate. And in the listening, it, it wasn't just the hearing of it. It was the embodying of it. There's a difference between hearing something and actually listening to it, right? Like actually giving yourself to follow. We see what he believed and what he did. He rejected the truth that God had told him. If you eat of this fruit, you will die. The man heard it from God himself, and he rejected it. Now, Eve's sin wasn't less severe because she was deceived, and Adam's sin more, it, it, worse than Eve's because he just di did it willfully. They both knew they weren't supposed to eat. They both understood this, and they both ate. Eve sinned looking for something better than what she currently had. And Adam sinned after hearing his wife talk about it and, and not stand up for what was true. Both exchanged the truth for a lie. They both did it. They rejected the truth of God for a lie. They went their own way. They did their own thing. Rather than rule and subdue, they were ruled and subdued. They were enslaved by the very creation that was gifted to them in which they were to reflect and represent God. And instead, they bowed before it and became slaves to it. And the results are immediate. It's immediate. God hasn't pronounced a curse yet, and immediately it says that they saw they were naked and they covered up. They made clothes out of leaves. Their corruption in the cosmos is, is all of a sudden. So, so you think back at the end of chapter 2, there was this, this knowing and being known by one another and by God. They were naked without shame. They were one flesh. God was there with them. Not, not natural consequences of sin or division and destruction that, that brought shame and guilt and all of a sudden, they're hiding, and they hear the sound of God. I don't know what that sounds like in the garden. I'm, I'm assuming wind. They hear the sound of God in the garden, and their first instinct is not run to see him and ask for help. Well, what do we do? Hide. Cower. They're wearing fig leaves, so, I mean, it's camouflage, right? It's natural. They're going to, I don't know. But here they are. Their sin as a result of Satan's temptation, their rejection of the truth for a lie, their deciding to eat when they were told not to eat, corrupts God's creation. But that's not the end, because now comes the curse, Genesis 3, 9 through 19. We'll pick it up in verse 9. 
But the Lord God called to the man. So they're hiding, right? They're out there hiding. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. No longer is there fellowship, right? There's no longer this intimacy. It's gone. I'm afraid. I want to get away. I'm scared. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on, on your belly you shall go and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman I will, and, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we're going to look at that much more closely next week. We're not going to deal with that much today. Next week as we deal with, the, with, with this curse on the serpent and the hope that it provides, uh, well, you'll just have to come back for that. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth child. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, right? Because you listened to her and not to me. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So here we are. Not, not only is the cosmos corrupted, but now the cosmos is cursed on account of mankind's sin. Now something to take note. This doesn't change God's godness. God doesn't cease to be God because of mankind's sin. In fact, his godness, his godliness, his authority, his sovereignty, his greatness, his, his glory, his, his goodness, it becomes more pronounced even. We can see it so much more clearly now. His goodness is nothing. His holiness, his, his righteousness, his purity, his sinlessness, his good in all that he does and all that he's created and everything that, about him becomes very clear when suddenly sin can't be anywhere near him but naturally seeks to hide and run and get away. His, his glory, his worthiness becomes extra clear when we begin to see that wait a minute i know i'm supposed to be worshiping but i'm afraid i'm supposed to be in fellowship with you but i'm afraid it becomes extra clear when the first thing they did the first thing they thought of the first instinct was run and hide because they know something's wrong we're naked we got to cover up oh gosh here's god they know something's wrong. And they don't want to be. I, I hid because I was naked. But God calls them out. He calls them out. God continues to be God. He calls. What do they do? You know, here's the reality. Every sinner one day will eventually be held accountable by God. Every sinner will be called eventually to face God. No one who escapes this. Everyone will be called to account. Everyone will be called to stand before God. God calls them out. He is still God. But it, it, this is beautiful. He doesn't Im immediately begin to just pound them with condemnation. He begins to ask them questions. God, God calls them and then he questions them. Well, who told you you were naked? Or how did you come to know the thing that just a few verses ago you didn't even seem to care about. Well, how, 
how did you come by this knowledge? Have you eaten? He didn't immediately condemn. Have you eaten? Did you eat what I told you not to eat? Now, immediately, this this question, did you eat, connects, connects their action with God's prohibition, what God was keeping them from. He didn't want this for them. Now, now I, I have a view. I, this is plan A. There's not a mistake being made here. But, but, but God gave the prohibition, and they had every opportunity. It would have been so beautiful if they had just listened to the prohibition, if they had just stayed away, if they had not eaten the fruit. God wasn't keeping them from something that was good. He was keeping them from something that was harmful. And he sees it all over them now, hiding from him, covering up from one another. In Adam's answer, we just see, we, we see how, how deep the corruption goes. Because he doesn't say, yes, I ate the fruit. What does he say? Well, this woman that you gave me. Almost as if, if you, if you had given me a different woman. So, so I used to work in aviation. Most of you know that. I used to work in aviation, and we had to do this thing called human factors training, where after an accident happens, they've, they've done enough observation that after an accident happens, they can determine that there was 350 mistakes or something along the way to lead to a catastrophic accident. I don't remember the exact number, but it's like 300 and some odd mistakes. And if you can avoid the one mistake back in this chain of human factors, then you can avoid the catastrophic accident. That's just humans trying to control our world that we live in, the created order, right? We're trying to figure out how to stop catastrophic accidents. And, 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 and so this is what Adam's saying. Hey, here's the order of events. You gave me a woman who's kind of screwed up, right? So you're really, it's really your fault that I did this. And if, if you had just not given me her, then I wouldn't be standing here. That's just how deep the corruption immediately went. God's not said anything. He's not said, oh, this is cursed. All he's doing is asking questions. So it's the woman's fault. It's really your fault, kind of the woman's fault. And yeah, now here I'm the victim. Sound familiar? I'm the victim of everybody else's junk. He turns to the woman. Hey, woman. I don't know that he says exactly like that. <laughs> hey, woman. <laughs> Sorry. I got to keep going, my brother. I got to keep going. What did you do this? What, 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 what is it? What, why? What, what did you do? Well, the serpent deceived me. Like, I, I thought I was going for something good. I mean, this is, this is the best salesman I've ever met. I thought I was going to have the good life. I thought I was going to have it all, everything I ever wanted. She didn't say that, obviously, but she did say the serpent deceived me. And I was lied to, and that excuses, because that was a lie. I'm excused for meeting. No, no, you're not. You sinned. <clears throat> God questions them to draw out the reality, just how corrupt they are. No, they're not standing there in front of him in fellowship with him. They're standing there in front of him lying to him like our kids lie to us. Did you eat that cookie? No. Got crumbs all over their face. Did you draw that on the wall? No. Got the pen in your hand. Right? They were corrupt already. Immediate. It was just so immediate. And then he curses. Now, here's, here's another thing to note. He doesn't question the serpent. He doesn't look at the serpent and begin to question. Serpent's condemned. Satan's condemned. He's already gone through this. Satan has already rebelled, right? There's already 
already this thing that's happening. God doesn't question him, doesn't give an opportunity for an answer. He just says, because you did this thing. Right? There's no curse, or, or, I'm sorry, there's, there's no question, only curse on the serpent. But as he brings the curse, God ultimately doesn't curse the man and the woman. He curses everything around them. The word curse is never applied directly to the man or the woman. Now, we talk about it that we're cursed, right? We say that in popular language. But very specifically, if you look at the text, the serpent is cursed and the realm in which we live is cursed. And we will experience the weight and the struggle and the pain that's caused by that curse. We live in it every day. Our sin has corrupted us, not God's curse. Don't misunderstand. We aren't what we are because God cursed us. We are what we are because we are born in the image of Adam, even though we still bear the image of God. We're going to deal with that in a few weeks. You understand what I'm saying? God didn't make you like this. He is not to blame because we are corrupted. We are corrupted because we sinned. That makes sense? Good? Read the text. Prove me wrong if you can, but I don't think you can. I've been studying this a long time now because I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that I said this. Well, I hope I said it well. So, but, but here we see the curse. So God walks through it, right? God curses the serpent. To the woman, he then says. He doesn't say, I'm going to curse you. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So what's cursed here is the ground, right? And, and you could say, well, oh, you know, God, God did something to make childbearing more painful. But that's not, it's not a corruption of the woman. It's, it's really just a, a reality of living in a fallen, broken, sinful world. Here, I'm just going to summarize these things for you. I've got a list of them so that you can see. Rest is displaced by toil. God finished creating on day seven. He rests. What's amazing about day seven is it doesn't say, and there was morning and evening the seventh day. It doesn't end that way. It just says God rested. And then it moves immediately into life in the garden. As if God intends for mankind in this moment, God's allowing mankind to live in his rest. He's going to rule and subdue the earth. He's going to multiply, fill the earth inside of God's rest where he has finished creating and made everything very good. God says that's no longer. It's going to be displaced by toil. And what's interesting, the, the Hebrew word is isabon. And that's noted at the woman in her childbearing, which we call labor, right? There's a reason we call it labor because God said it's going to be work. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be toil. And because you have listened to the voice of your wife, You've eaten of the fruit, you shall eat of it, curses the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You're going to toil, he says to the man, because I'm cursing the ground. And, and so here we are, here, here we are, both of them. Instead of enjoying the rest God had created in living in his rest, it's displaced by toil, hardship, hard work. Fruitfulness is displaced by futility. You're going to go out and work, and thorns and thistles are going to be, are, are, are going to be um, the result of that. It's, it's always interesting to me when I, when I meet a, I did this, so it's, I, it's just what we do. I, I meet somebody that thinks they're going to go out into the world, and they're going to make a way, and they're going to be better than everybody else. And 
Delusions of grandeur that they're going to go find the easy life. It doesn't exist. Work is hard in the earth, on the earth. It's part of the fact that the earth is cursed. What we seek to do produces thorns and thistles. That there's any fruitfulness is still an evidence of God's grace in the world. That you can eat anything is the evidence that God hasn't totally abandoned us to our sin. Our fruitfulness is displaced by futility. That's why the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is like, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. His conclusion over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes is, a guy should just take what he's got, sit down and appreciate it, do his work, keep his head down and thank God till the day he dies. Essentially is the conclusion. Because futility is going to be in place of fruitfulness as a result of our sin. Intimacy is displaced by division. Before God, before they sinned, they were, they were close. There was no, no covering, no hiding. Immediately they're covering up. But look at what he says to the woman. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now there's two Two, two primary interpretations of that. And I think the better interpretation is found in, in comparison to chapter 4. There's another use. There's, there's two uses of this word in the Hebrew, in all of the Hebrew Bible. Um, your desire shall be for him. But the, the phrasing is almost identical to what happens when God is speaking to Cain in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, let me get there and get where I can read it. Where he says, um, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It wants to consume you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's almost identical to what he's just said to the woman. Your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. Now, I think that's the better interpretation. What I think that that implies is that intimacy Replaced with competition. Replaced with enmity and difficulty and hardship. You ever had a friend or a spouse or a loved one and they hurt you and you hurt them and you want them to do what you want and they want you to do what they want? And it's the reality of what's happening. Intimacy is displaced by division. Harmony is displaced by discord. God starts a spiritual war. He tells the serpent, I'm going to put enmity there. It's not the serpent. It's not, the, it's not Adam and Eve who are doing this work. God does this. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. So suddenly, we live in a, we live in a world that's riddled with spiritual warfare. Not because Satan started it. Because God is God. And he will not let this stand. I, I, we did a sermon series years ago in Ephesians, and I called it the gracious rebellion. Because in God's grace, he didn't just leave us. He started a war, and he's going to win that war. Life is displaced by death. You're going to go out into the garden, or you're going to go out into the world, and there's going to be a day that you die. You will return to the dust, for the dust is from what you, you were made from the dust. You're going to return to it. Life is displaced by death. Now let's keep going, because there's more to see, and I, I'm, I'm already out of time, but we need to do this. 
after pronouncing the curse and telling Adam and Eve how life is, is going to be experienced, God's about to send them away. And look at this. Pick it up in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, garments of skin, clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has come, become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Uh, he drove the man out. Ah, oh, man, this light is terrible. He drove the man out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and he turned, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God exiles them. They cannot stay. They cannot continue to be there. So he sends them away. The, the, the one who was intended to rule and subdue the garden, the one who was supposed to guard the garden, is now the, the garden is being guarded from. God exiles them. God never ceases to be the great, glorious, and good God that he is. But we're already beginning to see glimpses of his grace, and we see that immediately as as he doesn't just condemn them, walk away from them, kill them. But also in this moment where where they had created or or made uh, clothes out of leaves, what does God do? A sacrificial death to cover their nakedness. He takes care of them. He doesn't just send them out into the cold. He doesn't make it so that that, that no fruit will ever be produced. He doesn't make it so that there's no food to eat. It's just by toil. God has not abandoned them completely. But there's always, there's still a glimmer of hope. Much like the hope. So, so we finish reading in verses 1 and 2. The, the spirits hovering over the waters. There's this chaos. Spirits hovering over the depths, over the water. And as hopeful as that is, that something is about to happen. There's as much hope in this, in, in this, in the, in the end of this chapter 3. He sends them out into the world covered. And though there will be toil to eat, they'll be able to eat. He is not abandoning them with a glimmer of hope. And we'll see this more fully next week that only God can deliver us from this chaos. Mankind had sought to live independent of God, thought, thought that they could find themselves in some better life. Now they found themselves more dependent than ever and more needy than they ever realized they were before. Only God could deliver them. Only God can provide us true rest. So Jesus comes and he says, come to me, all who, are labor, who, who, are, who labor and who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Only God can provide that rest. Oh, we're, we're, we, we, we try to find rest in inactivity and entertainment. We'll, we'll, we'll come back from vacation, we're more tired than we were when we left. After a weekend, we're just exhausted, got to start Monday. Oh gosh, I'm not ready for Monday. Part of that's because we don't want to go to work because work's toil. Part of that's because we didn't really rest on the weekend. Rest isn't found in inactivity and entertainment. Rest is found in God and God alone. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Only God can make us truly fruitful. You know the parable of the sower, the four soils, the, the, the farmer's going out throwing his seed, which we know is the gospel message. It's the word of the kingdom, as Jesus says. And the seed that lands on the hard heart's taken away and, and so on. And Jesus comes to this place where Matthew 13, 23, As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. God makes us eternally fruitful. Oh, man, we can come up with all kinds of inventions. I mean, I'm looking at an iPad that, that I've got. I don't even have to carry paper with me anymore. I've got, I've got my whole library right here. 
The whole thing, I can look up any book that, that I own. I can look it up right here. Amazing stuff we could do. When we stand before God, this kind of stuff is going to burn up. All the conveniences of modern life. At the beginning of the morning, I was just bothered. It's dim in here. I don't like that. I like the light. Turn the light up. So I go back in the back and I turn the light up and some people are tired to look around. And they're like, it's better. I like the light. This means nothing in contrast to the light that is eternal. Only God can make us truly fruitful. Only God can unite us in true intimacy. John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus' high priestly prayer. I did not ask for these only, but for those who believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. We, we, we have plenty of friends and family in a fallen world, and, and there's all kinds of ways that we relate and interact. But we'll never know the intimacy of true fellowship except with those who are united first to the Lord in Jesus Christ. We can be friends, but we will never have fellowship with someone who isn't in Christ. Only God can unite us in true intimacy. Only God can restore harmony. Every, every, every accomplishment we make, every achievement, it all burns up. It never actually satisfied. You, you think back to the, to the work of the... Uh, of the, of the um, Civil rights movement in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Great stuff. Good stuff happened. But we're just as fractured, just as big a problem, and just as, as, as much disharmony in the world today as there's ever been. But Revelation 21, 3 through 5, Jesus says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for, for the former things have passed away. What he's saying is there's going to be harmony. All the disharmony is going to be gone. All the suffering, all the pain, all the hurt, all the heartache, all the ways we sin against each other and get sinned against by one another. It's all gone. I'm making everything new. Behold, I am making all things new. Write down these words, for they are trustworthy and true. Only God can do this. And he's doing it. Only God can make the dead alive. Ah, man, we, pre we, we, we pretend like we're living. We dope up ourselves with material wealth and possessions. <coughs> we pretend to be living the good life. And it becomes obvious that we don't have all we want because when we look around at what other people have, we get jealous. We look at other people and say, oh, well, at least I'm better than them. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Only Jesus, only God can make the dead alive. The cosmos God created is corrupted and cursed because of mankind's sin. Only God can now deliver us from this chaos. Let's pray.